Zero is accounting software that has all the features small business owners need to run a business successfully. To help ensure business success, Zero also partners directly with accounting and bookkeeping firms, giving them a suite of tools and training to become Zero experts to help them and confidently advise businesses. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, Zero, later in the episode. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, Visit earmarkcpe.com, download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. This is Oh My Fraud, a true crime podcast where criminals slice and dice numbers instead of humans. I'm Caleb Newquist. And I'm Greg Kite. Greg, do you have any idea how much we spend on healthcare in this country? Uh, it is 3.8 metric shit tons. That is correct. Google, <laughs> Google it. Yeah. Um, if you're not, you know, if you're not fluent in the, the shit ton conversion, according to the national health expenditure accounts, and that's the official government estimates of health spending in the U.S., U.S. healthcare spending grew 9.7% in 2020, reaching $4.1 trillion, trillion with a T, or $12,530 per person. Um, and that, as a share of our GDP, is 19.7%. Yeah, that, that checks out. I have, I, have to yeah. pay the, uh, I have to pay the health insurance premiums of my company and $12,530 per person. Sounds, sounds about right. Yeah. So as we have established, I think we've established this on the podcast, but you know, we're not bringing any news here, but wherever there are mountains of money, there is bound to be fraud. And the healthcare industry is rife with money and ergo fraud. And I think that's especially true today, but in the not so recent history, Greg Kite, it has also been a target. Yeah, well, and and one of the things, I mean, when we talk about like healthcare and fraud, one of the things that comes to mind for me is the health south fraud. Yeah, that was that was back uh, what like in the early, that was that was right around the same time the Enron happened in the early two thousands, yes. and health south was like a two point eight billion dollar financial statement fraud. But I believe the fraud you're talking about is even not so recenter than the early two thousands. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right, Craig. For this episode, I would say this is the deepest cut we've ever done, Greg. Yeah. I'm excited about it. Nice. Yeah. I'm looking forward to a deep cut. Yeah. It centers on an Oklahoma-based company that built, leased, and operated nursing homes at a time when nursing homes were one of the hottest high-flying businesses of the day. It's kind of like, you know how the dot-com bust of like the late 90s, early 2000s? Uh, the nursing home industry was basically that in the late 1960s. Right. Because dot-coms were super sexy. And when people think of nursing homes, they think super sexy. Super sexy. And so none of them boomed bigger or busted harder than Four Seasons Nursing Centers of America. Wait, Four Seasons? You mean the company that Rudy Giuliani had his press conference in front of? That Four Seasons? That's that's close enough. Right yeah. on. I can't I can't wait. Tell me everything. 
All right, Caleb. So Four Seasons Nursing Home Centers of America. This this action started like significantly before you and I were both born, correct? Oh yeah. Yeah, it was the the late 60s. Okay. And if you know your healthcare history, and I know you do, Greg K. I I know it like the back of my damn hand. Oh good. Good. Anyway, so then you know, then the back of your hand tells you that Medicare, the the Medicare system was established in 1965. Yeah. When President when President Lyndon Johnson signed the Social Security Act amendments into law. Yeah. Um. And and interestingly enough, it was July 30th, 1965. I was born on July 30th, but not in 1965. But right on. In any case, but it's a it was an auspicious day. So as you can imagine, like when, when Medicare, it must've been a hell of a time when Medicare was like brand new, you know, like when, when Obamacare was brand new, people were mostly just complaining. Oh yeah. That's what I So <laughs> they pissy. Were pissed, super pissed off. And now, you know, almost the way it's been, it's been over a decade now and like, and people love Obamacare. <laughs> and so I think, you know, to try to, I mean, we weren't around, but like to think when Medicare was brand new, if I, if I understand it right, people were also pissy. Yeah. But some very savvy, very morally compromised people saw opportunity. <laughs> and so, you know, the idea being that the government, if you knew how to work the system, that you, you there were government dollars to be had. But prior to, prior to Medicare, it's interesting in the research I did for this podcast, I found this quote uh, from a case study that said the typical nursing home of the mid 1960s was a converted motel or bowling alley that was operated by individuals with little or no medical training. And that's kind of crazy (laughs) to think about Yeah, that like just a regular person that probably doesn't even know CPR was just watching, was just keeping track of old people in a converted bowling alley. In a converted bowling alley. Or a, or a motel. I, I guess that didn't stick in that it was a motel. So like to get from one room to the other, the nurse's assistant has to go out into the parking lot and walk past the ice machine to get to the next room where grandma's, you know, just holding on. Right. Needs needs a needs a fresh oxygen tank. Right. But but also kind of I mean, because I hear what you're saying. Uh, when we think of of nursing homes today, that's not really what we're thinking. But you got to think no. when nursing home was a brand new thing, people were probably going, "Oh gosh, it just any old schmuck takes care of their elderly parents." Right. So any anybody's got the required skills to be able to do what we need at this nursing home. So let them let them do it. Let's put a couple of beds on lane seven and eight and make this happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so to give you an idea of just how kind of the boom around nursing homes that was happening. I found this particular stat. I believe the was on, um, yes, uh, seniorliving.org. But anyway, uh, the guy writing there said in 1966, there were only a few publicly traded nursing home chains. By 1969, there were 58. And by 1970, there were 90. And the best known of these nursing home companies were called the Fevered Fifty, which I didn't believe. But and I right. dug into it, and it's like, no, it turns out it like people were calling this everywhere. And they, they, they these these nursing home companies were promising returns. They were pro- promising investor returns of twenty to twenty five percent, which 
kind of sounds like a Ponzi scheme, but yeah. no, they're, <laughs> they're legitimate businesses. And uh, in many cases, it said that uh, a lot of these companies were going public before they had completed construction on the nursing homes with prices at a huge premium in the rest of the market. So pretty speculative in yeah. nature, yeah. but in a way, Greg, it's really not that speculative because you know what's guaranteed? What's that? Uh, government money. Well, yes, but also oh, that, that people get old and die. People get old and go. die. Boom. Yeah. I got it. Second guess. So like the customers will just keep coming, you right. know, and right. I, and, and I, I have to imagine it must've felt like a, you know, like a geriatric, uh, well, well, not a gold rush, but a geriatric rush, right? right. Something. Yeah. Right. A golden girls rush. <laughs> there you go. That's it. I think that's what it was. But, but like you said, I mean, the first thing we, that, that you said, like if it's 20 to 25% returns every year, that does seem uh, astronomical. That seems too good to be true. But at the same yeah. time, I also could see where the people trying to sell people on that investment could say, we just got Medicare passed. Everybody gets old. Everybody needs this. This is, yeah. this is the new thing. Get in now. You're going to see a huge return on your money. So I, I right. could see that be, if I were pitched that at that time, I could, it would, it would seem believable just based on the current events that were happening around right. us. Right. So the company we're talking about is Four Seasons Nursing Home Centers of America. It was incorporated in 1967 and the two founders, uh, were Jack Clark a former milkman, home builder, and salesman of golf carts and gypsum products. Right. And didn't he and have a, a big New Year's Eve party too? Yeah. New York? That's him. Wasn't that the same guy? Well, I think it was it was his distant cousin Dick Clark, but ah, close. So close. Yes. Yes. And but his half brother. His half brother Dick Clark? <laughs> no, distant cousin. He's a distant cousin. Uh, okay. No, his half brother is Tom Gray. And he was a small hotel operator. So he must have heard about these you know, people sticking old people in old hotels and they thought, huh, right. could probably build a nicer, something nicer and convince a lot of people to give us money. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is, it is funny that, I mean, just based on what we said about how the first nursing homes were put together, it does seem like a small hotel operator would kind of have the skill set you're looking for to slap together a a nursing home in the late 1960s. Or someone who delivers milk. Or someone who delivers milk. Because a, a bottle of oxygen, a bottle of 2%, it's the, you know. They spoil at the exact same time. Exactly. Look at the expiration date. Pour it down the pour that oxygen down the drain if you're concerned that it went bad. So Clark and Gray, they were they were builders. Like I said, Jack Clark was a he was a former home builder. And they wanted they wanted to build them and then sell them to investors. So again, they're trying to they they were they sounded like speculators. I mean, it's Oklahoma. There's a wildcatter tradition, you know, in in old Oklahoma. And so, yeah, people were they, they sounded like you know risk takers. They saw opportunity and they wanted to go for it. And so Clark initially pitched doctors about you know about these nursing homes, but they weren't they just weren't expanding as fast as they wanted to. So. In 1968, the company's executives and their investment bankers kind of came up with a strategy to significantly expand Four Seasons operations. And this strategy involved establishing an independent company that would buy the nursing homes from Four Seasons and then operate them or sell them to other, you know, other parties. 
And this private company, which is going to become important later, when we talk about the fraud, was called Four Seasons Equity. And it was organized in 1968, and they capitalized it with about 20 million bucks. Gotcha. So you had the first company, which is the Four Seasons Nursing Homes, which is the main company we're talking about. They set up another company called Four Seasons Equity. And that, that, so basically they'd build them, they'd sell them to Four Seasons Equity. Four Seasons Equity would either A, operate these nursing homes themselves, or B, I guess, franchise them out, sell, sell them off to other parties? Yes. Okay. So anyway, Four Seasons, they IPO'd in May 1968 at $10 a share. Uh-huh. Okay. Which, is that, is that a lot? That seems like a lot. I feel yeah, like there's companies today that IPO at $10 a share. Yeah, but like IPO IPO prices are relative. Okay. Because it depends on how much stock you're issuing. Right, okay. It depends on a few other factors. So the, okay. the price isn't really, like you wouldn't adjust that to inflation because it's just all relative. Okay, gotcha. You know? Like you say, like a, a, a company going public today would maybe IPO at $10. Okay. If that's what they- But they probably would just have more shares out to- to get the capital they yeah, need. Yeah, probably. I get you. Yeah, yeah, depending on those how are, much money they wanted to raise. Those are the knobs you can you can twist. Okay, I get it. You got it. So the the share price hit one hundred dollars in the fall of nineteen sixty nine. So just over a year later, the stock had already increased tenfold. Yeah. And this the the it increased the the stock increase was due to the strength of the company's ro- or supposed robust financial performance uh, that it reported. In its, here we are, audited financial statement. There it is. Filed with the SEC. But also contributing to the kind of the surge in the price was the projections made by Jack Clark that he made in speeches and news releases. Right. And in 1969, he declared that Four Seasons was well on its way to becoming one of the largest. Oh, wait, excuse me. It was on its way to becoming the largest corporation in the world. Right. Which is hysterical because it started like a year and a half ago. So it's like, it's like, listen, we've, we've increased 10 times since we opened our doors in, in 18 months. And if we continue that trend of, of increasing 10 times every 18 months, then, Hey, within four years, we're going to have more money than exists on the face of planet earth. That's right. Get on the, get on the train. Unless you're a dumbass. Screw it. Screw NFTs. NFTs are for losers. This stuff (laughs) is where the money is right here. I think I want an NFT of uh, four seasons, nursing, nursing home centers of America is what I want. Anyway, the stock hit a high of $181, and that includes a stock split. Right. Well, but, so, but wait a sec, because yeah. I, I, I read some of the stuff. I want to make sure people understand yeah. that that, that yes. factors in the stock split. It so, does. It factors in the split. Okay, yes. because yes. because initially when I read that, that that includes a stock split, I went, oh my God, that means that it was really, what, $362, uh, but not not true. They had a stock split, so if you factor in... If you had an original stock and you got through the stock split, you would have had $181 at the end. Right. Yes. Right. Right. Okay. Cool. You got it. And then finally, finally, it all came crashing down in June of 1970. Which is awesome. And it was suspended from the trading on the American Stock Exchange in September of 1970. Investors lost $200 million. And this is where adjustment (laughs) for inflation comes into play. In today's dollars, that would be about $1.3 billion. Ridiculous. And in in let's and let's not forget it IPO'd in May of 1968, 
collapsed in June of 1970. That's, that's 25 months. This thing, this thing went from nothing to everything to everybody and got nothing. screwed in 25 months. I mean, it's impressive. It's yeah. impressive. $200 million in 1970. That's yeah. crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. A lot of money. Yeah. So that is the boom and bust of four seasons. So should we get into some fraud? Let's yeah. get into some fraud talk. Yeah. Let's do the fraud talk. Let's okay. Let's, let's, un- so, let's unpack how these bad guys did this bad thing. Let's unpack it. So first we'll start with some inflated revenue. Okay. Uh-huh. It's a very common occurrence. So basic. So basic, but yet so true. You gotta, it's it's like the fundamentals of basketball. If you can't yeah. if you can't dribble and do a layup, what 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 are you even doing here? Yeah. If 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 you're not gonna if you're not gonna to uh, inflate your revenue, then what are you even doing? Yeah, start right. start here. Get creative from yeah. Here. So, and we're gonna need your accounting chops here eventually, Greg. Okay, and y'all listening, you'll you'll see why in a minute. But the primary <laughs> means the Four Seasons management used to inflate its its profits was to misapply the percentage of completion method in accounting for nursing homes under construction. Yeah. So initially they were using the physical percentage percentage of completion method to determine the amount of profit to recognize on nursing homes under construction at the end of the fiscal year. Right. Now, I've been out of the game for a while. I kind of know what that means. But Greg, can you give us like a two sentence explainer on percentage of completion method it'll probably be a little bit more than two sentences but yes Fine. i can do that okay so right. so basically what happens is is usually on most on most contracts that you have the timeline for getting the contract and fulfilling it to to the point where you should be able to recognize the revenue under normal circumstances that happens within one period uh one accounting period so, right. so that, so you can like then, a quarter or a, like usually a quarter or a year. A year. Right? Yeah. Usually we're talking a, a year. If something can be done, okay. most, most transactions can be completed within a year. But when you get into construction, a lot of these big construction projects take longer than a year to complete. As a matter of fact, I, so if I haven't said this on every single podcast, my day job, I'm, I'm a in-house CPA for a group of medical office buildings. Uh, Intermountain Healthcare, one of my buildings is on campus with one of their big hospitals, and they just did a remodel of their campus that took five years. So that's a great example Yikes. of a yeah. uh, of a construction project that uh, in the healthcare industry that's a multi-year project. And so right. when, if you were doing a very, very like uh, anal retentive matching principle kind of thing, then as yep. you as you created this building, all of your costs would just go into a, a, a work in progress or a, a cost of goods sold kind of account. And you wouldn't recognize any of those costs until you completed the project. And at that point, you could recognize the revenue for the entire project and you could recognize the expenses for, for the entire project. But when you're looking at a multi-year project, that's going to make it. It doesn't make any sense to do it that no. way. No, and it would make things really weird because then you'd have these years where you had like no no revenue no at revenue, all. Yeah. And then you'd have like a ridiculous amount of revenue 
in in this one year, and that's not accrual accounting at that point. Right, that, exactly. That, that screws that up. So the idea of percentage of completion was okay in this particular period, whether it's a year, a quarter, or whatever. We completed this percentage of the work, so we're going to recognize that percentage of the costs, and we're going to recognize that percentage of the final profits that we will receive. Well, that we will receive at the end of this of this project. So that way you won't have these, we made nothing, we made nothing, we made nothing, we made everything kind of, uh, you know, balance sheet and profit and loss. So, um, so that's why, that's why they do that. And at one point, and, and, and with that, you're looking at, a that was lot, more, I just want to note for the record that that was more than two sentences. That way, go on. That was like 20. Uh, I had, I, my, my sentences increased by tenfold in, in, in mere minutes the uh, the other thing though is is well here's what I was getting at there's yeah. tons of assumptions involved in that because what sure. you have to do is you have to say okay everybody stop we're at the end of the period how much of this job did we do this year and somebody has to go I don't know thirty <laughs> percent and everybody goes right yeah yeah thirty thirty percent looks yeah, like thirty percent yeah that's it's about the, look look out the window yeah it looks like thirty percent we're good say thirty percent. So right. that's, and then, but then they, and I think you're going to get into this because tell us, because they had to change, yeah. weren't they forced to change it to, so here, yeah, we'll, 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 I can talk about that a little bit. So Four Seasons would, for example, recognize 20% of the profit on the project that was 20% complete at the end of a given year, just as like you were describing, right? Assuming, well, assuming that the project also was started in that year right 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 or or okay. or alternately you could say if it, again if it's a multi-year project multi-year project, you'd say well right. this year we did 20 percent of it so even if right. it wasn't started that year you just go how much did we do this year right and so in 1969 the company switched their revenue recognition method from well they switched to excuse me they switched to the cost to cost percentage of completion method and under that method the percentage of profit recognized on a long-term construction contract in a given period is equal to the proportion of the total expected cost for the project incurred during that period. So for example, if 80% of the total expected costs for a project were incurred in a given year, the same proportion of the total expected profit for that project should be recognized that year. Right. So can so the difference, so Greg, how about a brief explanation of the difference? This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by Zero. If you love listening to this podcast, you've learned that systems and processes could have prevented many of the frauds we've discussed. Having an accounting system like Zero can help a business create the processes it needs so that it can avoid becoming a future Oh My Fraud episode. Zero lets you set up multiple users, each with their own login and password, so you can accurately assign the proper access to each user. When it comes to accounts payable, Zero pushes all bills through a built-in approval process. Zero's expense management tools ensure that employees only get reimbursed for approved expenses. And because Zero connects directly to banks, you can reconcile and match transactions daily to ensure that any money coming and leaving the bank accounts is what you expected. To become a Zero partner and gain access to free tools, benefits, and rewards for your practice, head over to ohmyfraud.promo/zero. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash X-E-R-O. Oh 
It's so it's so close to the same. It's ridiculous because it sounds really close to the same thing, right? To me. Because because before they were just saying, "Oh, we're about we're about we did about twenty percent of that job this year, so we'll recognize twenty percent of the income." But then the costs that they have incurred on that project to date, they would just use the actual costs, so it wouldn't necessarily be a proportional amount of the profit, uh, you know, of the revenue to the cost. This way, they're locking that in. They're saying, "Okay, how much?" How much of you? How much did you spend on the project this year compared to the total amounts that you think you're going to spend on the project in total? And then yep. that, you, then that proportion is the same amount of revenue that you get to recognize in that year. But again, you boil it all down; it's all subjective. Again, you go, "Oh, we did. Right. We we spent 125 million on this job this year." Uh, and it's like, cool. How much are we gonna spend for the whole job? And they gotta go. I don't know. I mean, we're kind of thinking five hundred thousand, but you know, I don't know. We could. Who knows? Uh-oh. Maybe there's gonna be some supply chain disruption due to a global pandemic, and it's gonna be seven hundred thousand. You don't. You don't right. know what's gonna happen. So, so it's still based on a lot of subjectivity. So, what's important about this switch of method is that. The guy who prosecuted these guys, this guy by the name of Gary P. Neftalis, he was a U.S. attorney, Southern District of New York. He insisted that the switch in accounting methods was made because Four Seasons Management realized that their profit in 1969 was going to be less than they expected. And so by switching to the cost to cost percentage of completion method, they could manipulate the profit, recognize by distorting the expenditures. And so, as you said, I mean, kind of seems to me that they could have distorted it under either method, but fun fact about this little switch in the footnote of this case study that I found and Greg, you, you kind of enjoyed this. I did. Uh, let me, let me, let me find it here. The sec was at least partially responsible for them switching the methods. Um, they had actually complained to the company that they were overestimating the physical state of completion on the projects. And as a result, they were recognizing too much profit during the early years. So they said, wait, you're being too aggressive. Switch to this other method, which will think you'll actually be more accurate. And this you at this Nef- Neftalis, Neftalis, I don't know if I'm saying his name right. I'm sorry. You are. You're nailing sorry. it. Okay, right. But anyway, he contends that actually, no, the switch allowed them to be more aggressive than they were being. And so it's just kind of a weird little contradiction that happened between the perspective of the SEC and then the, the perspective of the prosecutor who eventually, you know, was, was prosecuting this case. Right. Well, and, and if you think about it too, it, that would be awesome because I could see where the perception from the SEC would be like, this is, this is a tighter method. This is math. So you, right. you, you, you got to tell us how much cost you think you're going to have for the whole project and how much cost you've, you've had this year. And then the funny thing is that's, it's, that almost gets to be like cash accounting because then you go, oh, you know what we're going to do? We're going to buy all of our supplies for this six-year project right now. And then we right. can show that we had tons of costs in this 
period. And we can, and we can recognize almost the entire profit right right now. So that's, I mean, there's, there's ways to manipulate stuff like that. And, and if you've got smart accountants, there's two things that they're happening. One, they're going to know, they're going to think through that pretty easily on, Oh, this is what you want me to do. Cool. Cause here's how I can totally use that to change my numbers to my benefit. The other thing that smart uh, managerial accountants are going to be able to do is they're going to know the different ways that you can expense jobs or recognize revenue, and they will know which one is going to be more uh, advantageous for them in terms of the presentation of the financial statements. So they will definitely argue with their auditor to go, no, this one makes a whole lot. No, you know, LIFO is way makes makes way more sense for us than FIFO. So we got we got to do it this way. Oh yeah, and also we're going to have an amazing year this year, but it also right. totally makes sense. Right. So, that's the inflated revenue. That's what was going on. Yeah. Now, there was another thing that was also part of part of what appeared to be untoward activity, and that was these intercompany transactions that they were calling revenue. So they were they were they were intercompany sales transactions on their income statement, and this guy Neftalis, the prosecutor, said that from 1968 to 1974 seasons controlled the operations of its principal customer, which was Four Seasons Equity, that we talked about a little bit earlier. Right. right. Yes. And in Jack Clark, one of the founders, his guilty plea that he. He he eventually, when we get to the to the charges and things, we'll get to this. But he ended up uh, pleading guilty to conspiracy to violate securities laws. He admitted that the major decisions by Four Seasons Equities management were dictated by key executives of Four Seasons, i.e., him. And so you've got basically you're just you're selling. To, they were they were selling these projects to themselves, right? And they were calling it revenue, right? That's not revenue, yeah. Because they and and one of the things in in some of the stuff that you, some of the articles you sent me about this case that I read, yeah, it was really interesting because they were like it was a total secret that Four Seasons Nursing Homes was a related entity to Four Seasons Equity. Who who would have thought that those two companies with almost identical names? were somehow it owned by the same people or any sort of relation that's so fucking weird yeah all right so shall we move on yeah. to some of the trials convictions yes etc well yes okay. let's, yeah let's do that Quiddles. okay yeah so there were eight people indicted in December 1972, after a 10-month investigation, they returned uh, a 65-count count indictment, which is a lot. But yeah. as we have found over the course of this podcast or just reading lots about frauds, anyone that reads a lot about frauds, anytime that you kind of you know, manipulate accounting results, all of a sudden, like you get an indictment that's like a thousand pages long because like almost every single person that you've defrauded is like a separate count. Right. I'm, I'm only, I'm only slightly exaggerating, I think. Right. But so there's like set, there's like many, many counts of mail fraud, many, many counts of securities fraud. And that's why these indictments, they ended up with so many counts. But in this case, 
Uh, it was a 65 uh, count indictment, but the gist was they manipulated the results that misled investors into paying higher prices for the stock in the company. Yeah. Financial statement fraud to to inflate stock prices so that the, the owners and executives with a bunch of stocks could get rich. You got it, man. That's it. You got Again, it. so basic. Jeez. Tried and true. Tried and true. Yeah. Try, okay. Tried so, and true. <laughs> let's run down who 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 the the defendants in this case. So we mentioned Jack Clark. He's the one of the founders. He's the chairman and the president. Tom Gray, uh, his co-founder, half brother, and then another gentleman by the name of James Lynn of Oklahoma City. He was president of Four Seasons Franchise Centers. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then the bank was Walston and Co. Right. Walston and Company. And the two guys uh, with Walston that were indicted were Glenn Miller. Had a great orchestra. He had a great orchestra. Tremendous orchestra. Amazing. He was the executive vice president in his spare time. Uh, And he was... uh, as I recall, he was like third in the company at this investment bank. So he was high up there. And then another gentleman by the name of Gordon McCollum. So those guys, both those guys were indicted. And finally, we had four, four people. No, excuse me, three. I'm sorry. Three, three people indicted that were with Arthur Anderson. Uh, two partners, uh-huh. Kenneth Warman, uh-huh. and Edward Bolka. Yep. They were both partners. And then I don't know this. I couldn't find who, what this, what the level this third person was, but his name is Jimmy Madole, Uh, or it's maybe it's Madole. I don't know, but he was the third person indicted. It's, and it's a Madole. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a Jimmy Madole. Yeah. He's a dude of the books. And so, so three people from Arthur Anderson, three people from Four Seasons and two people from Walston. So a total of eight people. And in this New York Times article that it was that, uh, talked about the indictment. There were the, a four-page statement was issued by Arthur Anderson, and its chairman Harvey Kapnick stressed that no charges were made against the firm of Arthur Anderson. But what he didn't mention, but was true, is that Arthur Anderson was an unindicted co-conspirator. So that's not nothing. No, um, that's not. Yeah, but but it is interesting because. What they're saying is, okay, hey, yeah, three of our people, two partners and one of our CPAs, yeah, they were indicted, but the company itself wasn't, so we're good. We're cool, guys. Don't worry about us. Hold your horses, my friend. They, They went on. The statement went on to say, with specific regard to our personnel, it read, the indictment alleges a misstatement of Four Seasons earnings for the fiscal year ended June 30, 1969, as to which Arthur Anderson had given its opinion based on its regular examination for such fiscal period. We completely and categorically deny such allegations. So Anderson stood behind its guys, Yeah. whereas the Walston guys, the banking guys, Uh they were no longer at Walston when they were indicted. Do you know, did they get fired or did they... Walker. I don't, I don't, I believe they were, I, I don't think I read precisely what happened, but my hunch would be is that they were probably asked, they probably were pushed out, resigned or whatever. Yeah. But they yeah. were not, these three Anderson guys were still at the firm throughout this whole ordeal. And right. we'll get to what happens to them in just a little bit. Nice. But, but what's interesting in this, in this article was that 
the partners in this case, they had voluntarily taken lie detector tests to prove their innocence. And they, but the U S attorney refused to permit the lie detector examiner to testify to the grand jury. And part of that is weird because there, it seems like at a time, because these days people are like lie, lie detectors are, it, they're bullshit. It's basically like voodoo right, essentially right. In, a, in a court of law. So the fact that this, at this time, apparently they had some credence, they had some credibility. I right. don't know. No, I but, think, I think, you're, I think you're absolutely right. Behind its, I, I think Anderson was standing behind its people. Well, you know, back, back in the late 1960s, they didn't have countless YouTube videos that would train you on how to beat a lie detector test right. and, and meet the parents who hadn't come out yet either, where all of us learned how to beat a lie detector test. Right. So just, it's, just don't be Ben Stiller. Exactly. Ben's, right. Ben Stiller's what really, he's really the guy that brought down the lie detector industry as a whole. Uh, and there's still a lot of uh, of angst in that industry directed towards uh, Ben Stiller and his and his father. True story. Look at Jerry up. Stiller. Jerry Stiller. <laughs> Look it up. <laughs> Jerry Stiller. Okay. All right. So just a few kind of more tidbits that were kind of at at the time of the indictment. You know, they were accused of, and this is this is kind of reading for the Times article. There were sham sales of nursing homes, phony construction costs, fictitious franchises, and false financial statements. And Arthur Anderson ignored the fictitious figures and certified the accuracy of the financial statements for Four Seasons. And the Four Seasons defendants, when the corporation's financial position became precarious, defendants who had purchased large amounts of stock began secretly selling it to the public through confidential numbered brokerage accounts at Walston. And the profits exceeded $21 million. Which all that stuff, I mean, nobody labeled that in anything that I read or anything that you put together. No one labeled that specifically as insider trading, but it's basically right. insider trading where it's like, guys, yes. we totally blew up the stock price on this and we've got to we've got to ditch these shares now because we know that our house of cards is crumbling sometime within the next 25 months give or take 25 months. No kidding. In in the case study, which was really was really a gem of a piece of research that I found, they had that they had a kind of a quote from I don't remember which of the defendants, but it was one of the Four Seasons guys. He said, "Let's get Walston the bank. We let's get their opinion as when we could sell a sizable portion of our stock while the stock is at a good price." to guard against having to sell after the public realizes that nursing homes will not meet profit expectations. Yeah. There you go. That's, that's a hundred percent. It When So you guys at Walston, you tell us when you think we peaked, when did we, what did we yeah. peak? And then we're going to, we'll dump it. We're going to we'll sell, 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 sell. But yeah. again, because they don't want to raise suspicions, they've got to do it from the secret numbered account rather than something that has right. th- these executives names attached to it. Right. Um, just a couple other little tidbits that factored in these financial statements that were manipulated, falsified, whatever they were used to secure a $4 million loan that, uh, they secured essentially from the state of Ohio. So there was that got wrapped up into it and they sold $15 million in bonds to investors in Europe. So they had, you know, that was all wrapped up in this as right. well. So, so so when we say that investors lost $200 million in this fraud, that doesn't include the, what, t- uh, almost $20 million of loans that were 
defaulted. I think that's right. That the company defaulted yeah. on. So it's yeah, more like I think two, that's right. 220, it's closer to 220 million. Right. The losses between the investors and the creditors that got hosed. Right. So what happened to these guys? You know what happened to these guys? What happened yeah. to them? the eight the, the the eight dudes who got okay indicted? Right. So we'll start with the bankers. So okay. the guys from Walston. This is this is Glenn Miller and Gordon McCollum. <laughs> <laughs> they both pled guilty. They both pleaded guilty to all I could find was certain charges. Right. So it was not any kind of uh, uncertain charges. <laughs> Right. So they pleaded guilty in, they each fined uh, $40,000. That's what I found for their punishment. Uh, no jail time. Right. And, Jane, and just, yeah. just to reference that, in 1973, $40,000 could buy you all the cocaine. Ah. That's like, all of it? Yeah. Uh, you know, the, what's the movie? Uh, Say hello to my little friend. That much cocaine. Oh, okay. Yeah. Got it. Who's that? What, what am I? I know the movie. Scarface. Anyway, yeah. James Lynn, he was one of the Four Seasons guys. He was acquitted on all charges. Okay. So he was the guy that was the, oh. the president of the Four Seasons Franchise Centers. Okay. Acquitted He's like, charges. you're good. You're good. Yep. These fake, for, I know you put together all these fake franchises, but forget it. We like, we like you. You're good. You're a good kid. Get out there and just knock it off you. Yep. Don't, don't ever do it again. <laughs> right. Tom Gray, one of the co-founders, he yep. was sentenced to a year in prison and a $10,000 fine. Okay. Okay. Yep. So those those were like kind of the pretty straightforward, I guess, sentences and or acquittals for those. Okay. Gotcha. Jack Clark, one of the, probably kind of the main, yeah, you know, the the, the, the main guy in, in this particular story, he pleaded guilty to conspiracy to violate conspiracy law, uh, excuse me, to violate securities laws. And he was sentenced to a year in prison. Um, no fine, but it, he ended up being eligible for parole in like four months. That's, that's so, crazy. So he was the main crazy. guy and he got, he got, uh, he got hit harder than his cousin and harder than the, the bankers or no, 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 the bank, sorry, no, the, no, no, the, no. the cousin and the bankers got hit harder than him. He only got, he only got a year in jail and no fine at all. No fine that I could find crazy. Yeah. And so. To be fair, like the prosecutors were definitely looking for more severe punishment. But, so here's but wait, a couple of wait, things. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Didn't Jack Clark, what? didn't he get nine, like nine million bucks from, from dumping his shares? So when we talked about, when we talked about them selling those sock from those secret accounts at yeah. the bank, yes, he personally benefited. <laughs> I saw both nine million and I saw 10 million, somewhere between nine and $10 million is what he personally made. So, from those so sales. he goes to jail for one year and he gets to keep all his nine million dollars of, insider trading cash I mean, you have to believe that there a lot of that money ended up going to lawyers but yes i mean he was wow rich. okay yep Jeez. so it, so just to give you an idea how you know the the prosecution felt about all this from the new york times during the two-hour session in which the sentence was imposed gary neftalis he was a prosecutor he asked judge thomas p grisa i don't know if i'm saying that right to met out you a are sentence nailing that, it. thank you would met out a sentence that would inform the public that there is no special privilege for people of the wealth and prestige of Jack Clark. Well, turns out there absolutely <laughs> is. There is special privilege. Uh, the prosecutor <laughs> added that Clark represented a challenge to the criminal justice system at a time when court critics were complaining that white collar criminals received better treatment than common criminals who committed street crimes. So 
I know what you're thinking. Mm-hmm. Nothing has changed. Yeah, <laughs> in, ki- kind of. In 50 yeah. fucking years. Yeah. And here's, here's a couple of uh, bits from Jack Clark's defense lawyer. The defense lawyer contended that Clark had previously led a blameless life and had built a nursing home business that made substantial contribution to the care of the elderly, adding that he was a devoted family man who coached baseball and football for youngsters. Clark succumbed to committing a crime, the lawyer said, because Four Seasons had suffered financial difficulties. I mean, you could put 2022 on this and no one would fucking bat an eyelash. Right. I mean... Right. Am yeah, I wrong about that? Do you, I mean, what do you think? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, it does seem, you know, the, the stuff about, you know, coaching baseball and football for <laughs> youngsters, that's, that does seem pretty mid-century kind of, kind of thing where it's like this, this guy, he's a, don't put him to jail. He's a family man. See, he coaches yeah. baseball and football for the youngsters in town. He can't be all that, but he helped your grandma through her tough time and, and that, uh, when she was in a nursing home, what did you want to take care of her? No, you didn't, but he did it for you. He's a good guy. Let's not put him to jail. <laughs> right. So I think in the, in the, in the Anderson trial, the judge again, seemed very kind of convinced that this was very much just a stock manipulation scheme and that Anderson's role was, you know, it, it just wasn't, they were kind of duped into this, right? And again, going back to that, the, the the memo that was written by a Four Seasons executive, let's get the bank's opinion as when we can sell this. Like that was the crux of the whole thing. And so that's what basically right. made the case. And like, you know, whether Anderson was accomplices, that's why they had to, they did this trial of the Anderson guys is to, you know, see to what degree their culpability was. So during yeah, the tr- sure. criminal trial of this guy's Kenneth Warman and and the, the Edward Bolka, Jimmy Madol Madole, Madole, <laughs> the the prosecutor proved that Four Seasons included huge amounts of fictitious construction and expenditures in its cost report. So we we mentioned that. So yeah, and to your point is. Like there's a lot of estimation involved. And so they were probably being generous with those estimates and thereby they amount to fictitious expenditures. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that resulted in these illicit profits. And the prosecutor said that, well, Arthur Anderson was aware of all this and that they were, that, that they were, so that made them party to the conspiracy, right. To, to defraud via the financial statements. Yeah. But the attorneys for, Ken Warman and these other guys, they disputed this because they, and they disputed it by submitting evidence of copies of work papers from the engagement. And these work papers indicated on several occasions that the auditors challenged fictitious costs they discovered and persuade the client to make proper financial statement adjustments for those costs. Right. And so, which, and which it, is, and, which yeah, is crazy. I think that's crazy because Go because, on. Well, because it's it, it seems like again like an auditor who's just trying to cover their ass. Where it's like, hey, let's let's make sure that we push back on some stuff here, so that we right. can put it in our work papers that we pushed back on stuff. So if anything ever comes back, we say, yeah, we told them, we said, we said we did, we weren't cool with this, and we we pushed and we made them make some changes. And it's like, yeah, but you didn't. But they, it was still like totally it's wrong 
And it's like, right. yeah, well, yeah so but, that's, but we, you know, we, but we found what we found and we made them change that. Right. And so that's, what's interesting about that is when you say, okay, you found the fake, you found the, the, the made up numbers. And they said, well, guys, you got to make some adjustments to not include those made up numbers. And it's like, all right, we won't include the made up numbers. But I think your point is, but they made the numbers up. Right. Right. It was still right. way wrong. Yeah. That, right. That is, that is wrong. That in and of itself should, I don't know if it constitutes a crime, but it should, the auditors, there should be some, it kind of makes you wonder, it's like, why aren't auditors given like more kind of tools to be like, uh, we found fake numbers and we just had them adjust the numbers and it right. was fine. Right. And, it, well, and it's kind of, that, that conclusion is kind of weird. Well, and I think it goes back to the tightrope that auditors have to walk with their clients where it's like, hey, you're hiring us to call bullshit on your numbers. And if we call bullshit on your numbers, you can totally fire us, right? So, okay, I think your numbers are cool. So you have to, so yeah, like I said, it's like this tight, it's a, it's a tightrope of yep. the fact that you're not really independent, even though you're trying to, to show that you're independent, but you're not because you're getting paid by the people who want you to give an unqualified opinion of their financial statements. So, so in addition to, so that was the inflated revenue bit. They also, the prosecution also attempted to prove that these guys knew and were aware of the bogus nature of those intercompany transactions where four seasons was essentially selling stuff to themselves to four seasons. A completely right. unrelated four seasons. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, and, and I mean, if you're an auditor and you're saying, oh, and you're inquiring about these transactions, it's like, oh, so who's this? It's like, oh, it's our biggest customer. And it's like, oh, I noticed that your biggest customer has a very similar name to you. Is this like, <laughs> right. they have right. to know, they have to know. Right. 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 That seems that if I was, if I was prosecuting Arthur Anderson, I would have just spent the whole time going Wait, so, so you didn't know that four seasons was related to four seasons. Say right. it out loud. Say it. Say it out loud so that the the court stenographer can put it in the record. Say say that you didn't say it. That's that would have been my whole argument. Yeah, and I think you would have. I think you would have made them. They they would have crumbled on the stand, Greg. So the two Anderson, uh, two of the Anderson defendants were actually found innocent of the fraud and conspiracy charges. However, there was a hung jury for the the partner, Kenneth Warman. Okay. But then nine months later, a judge dismissed the indictment on the advice of the prosecutor. And so no Anderson employees were convicted uh, of the charges that they faced from this particular case. Yeah. Wild. What it, do you know what that means that the judge on the advice of the prosecutor yeah, dismiss the indictment. Is that is that kind of like the prosecutor just saying, "Hey, we're not going to pursue this anymore," but right. just doing a different. Essentially, I mean, that's my when you read about cases like that where there's a hung jury, because uh-huh. like a lot of times when it comes to criminal cases, like judges really impress upon juries. Um, if it's a jury case, I should say sometimes judges decide decide these cases, right? Um, but they really impress upon jurors to reach a verdict. Right. Okay. Because a hung jury means nothing happens. Right. And you're basically still like, you're still left with the situation. It's on, it, it remains unresolved. Uh-huh. And in this case, it, it, it sounds as though 
something I found the research, the federal government spent a million dollars. Again, this is the early seventies by this point, they spent a million dollars prosecuting these Anderson defendants. Anderson spent millions more defending these guys. And so, you know, I think if you're the prosecution, you've gone through this trial, two people are acquitted. Hmm. One person you had a, you, you know, you had a mistrial. If you're a prosecutor and you're just like, are we really going to invest more of our very limited time in going after this guy when the chances of success are probably pretty low? Right. And they probably just said the judge, like judge, we're, we're going to pass on this one. And that's probably right. We don't want to, we would want to put another million dollars in for another hung jury. So how about we let him walk to probably lose? Right. Cause you have to believe, cause because essentially the the mistrial is a is a win for the defendant. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a straight loss for the prosecution. Yeah. You know, even though it's technically, I don't know, there's no ties in the court of law, I suppose, but it's about as it's one of those, yeah, the, the prosecution is definitely unhappy with a with a mistrial right. hung jury. Yeah. So wow. So we, we talked about what they spent on the trial, what they spent defending. Oh, interesting note. The managing partner of the Oklahoma City office of Arthur Anderson was named as an unindicted co-conspirator, and he was he was included because of his the supervisory kind of nature of, of of a position like that, and that was important because we we mentioned this guy a little while ago, but a guy by the name of Harvey Kapnick, he was the chairman of Arthur Anderson during this time, yeah, and he kind of put out this warning at the time that this was a sign that auditors in, in future cases, like this is what they could expect. Right. So if you're a national, you know, if you're a managing partner of an office and you have you, an audit blows up in your office and you run that office, whether or not you set foot in that audit room at any given time, you can bet that your name is going to be all over that thing. Right. Or maybe not all over it, but you will, you will be, you will be a target or you will, you will have to deal with those repercussions. And do do you think his, his, uh, his forecast was accurate? Oh yeah. Because, yeah. but, but I don't feel like there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, accounting accountants or accounting firms that are actually indicted in a lot of this stuff. There's, they're, well, they're, they're un-indicted. hand slapped and Un- they're dragged through it. Uh- Unindicted. Okay. Uh, yeah. No, the, the, this guy was an unindicted co-conspirator. Okay. And Arthur Anderson, the firm was an unindicted co-conspirator again, right. because of the kind of the super, the, yeah. the, you know, the, the, the methodology, the audit methodology of a firm, right. Yeah. Belongs to the entire organization, the entire entity, I suppose. And so from that okay. standpoint, a prosecutor could say, yeah, I mean, they didn't, they weren't party to the crime, but like their methods were implemented and they were, they were abused or they were misused in the furtherance of this crime. Right. And so that's probably the, the at least part of the reasoning that someone would have in saying, well, they're an unindicted co-conspirator, like they're a co-conspirator, but we can't charge them with a crime. So he's right? saying, he's saying that the, just being dragged through it is what's in yeah. the future. Not, well, not so much the indictments that happened to his people. But, but exactly. being dragged well, through the mud. Although well, I guess since they all got acquitted or dismissed, that they kind of were just dragged through it themselves too. So well, here's so I think this is something that we can get to into the lessons part of it. But like that's the issue, right? Is what do you make of you know you have you have these three 
Arthur Anderson employees, they are acquitted of all the charges, but the damage to the reputation of them and the firm, like that is very real, right? And so that I think is what this warning that this the 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 chairman of the firm at the time, Harvey Kapnick, was saying was every time this happens, it will tarnish our reputation. And Arthur Anderson has a has a spotless record. And we we we, we this this will this will tarnish this firm every time it happens. Right. At least until 2002. Right. And then and then there won't be a firm anymore to tarnish right. because it'll no, be I tarnished mean, too I, much. Right. So that's what happened. That's the case. Voila. Okay. Four Seasons Nursing Home Centers of America. Greg, is there anything to learn from a 50-year-old fraud? Anything? Anything at all? Uh, yeah, there's. I oh, feel like there's a good. lot that that that's highlighted by this case that's still true today. And the first thing that comes to mind is that external auditors are not in the business of detecting fraud, and they and they will they will go to their grave saying that that's not. They will they will direct you back to their engagement agreement that they had with you. The engagement letter that says right here in paragraph four, it says we're we're not responsible for finding fraud inside you. If we do, awesome. But if we don't, that's on you at that point. So, yeah. Uh, and the other thing is that just specifically, an audit is not an internal control. And there's a lot of things that we can see with that. The the ACFE report to the nation, they like every, they they publish that every two years, and it seems like every time. The, the percentage of frauds that are detected by the external auditor is like 3% of the, fr- so it's, it's, right. you know, and, and who knows what the margin of error is on that? Maybe 3%. So it's not, there's not a lot of fraud that's detected by your external auditor. And like I said, they're not, they're trying their very best to cover their butts and say that wasn't that we were trying to say that these financial statements were presented fairly. We weren't trying to, we weren't out to find your fraud in your business. That's not our job. And what, what did the, what did our guest say? McKenzie? Yeah. Francine McKenna. Yeah. Cause she, that's her, that, that was her big thing was that auditors should be detecting fraud, but that they constantly say that they do not and will not. Yes, that is essentially her position. I mean, I think what's what is what is interesting about this is that nothing has changed in 50 no, years. Right. And they yeah, they they weren't detecting fraud then and they aren't detecting fraud now and they're trying to get out of it both right. you know, 50 years and in later. In this particular in this particular instance, it seems as though that auditors they were on the winning side. Like yeah. I'm, I I don't necessarily I don't know. I I'm not I don't do I have a dog in this fight? Do we have dogs in these fights? No, I don't. Not, not I don't. Really. I mean, Francine will probably be disappointed here. I've got opinions. I got opinions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think I don't want to say Arthur Anderson won. They were on the winning side this time. But there's plenty of examples where where juries find a different result, right? Where they said, "No, y'all didn't do your fucking jobs, and right. you're gonna pay." Right, and so. You know, I know, I know there were some, we didn't get into the civil cases around this and I, I, and I don't know if, if Arthur Anderson was 
had some some civil uh, litigation to contend with here. But you know, our auditors there are plenty. There are countless examples of where auditors are held responsible for their failure to detection of fraud. And so you have one side saying, nope, not our job. And, and, but then you have the court of public opinion that says, now sometimes it is your job and you didn't do your job. And so we're going to hold you responsible. Right. And that is such a, like, it sounds like an impasse to me because if, if the auditors finally said, you know what guys, yep, we've been wrong. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll change our tune on this. Like they're, they're finished. Right. Right. Absolutely. That'd be the end of it. Yeah. And so they just have to stick to their guns and to their credit, you know, these firms are not human beings. They're, they're just organizations. And so, yeah, they can, they can, they can say this forever. They can, they can hold out. Yeah. Right. I don't know. Yeah. So that, so that was one thing that stuck out to me. Another, another one of the things that I think this case highlights is when it comes to financial statement frauds, uh, management estimates of whatever thing that they can estimate and that gets reflected on the financial statements, that is fertile ground for committing fraud all always and forever will be. And and we even know that in, in the auditing standards, it says anytime there's a man, it, management estimate, that's going to be relied upon and it's going to be reviewed and it's going to be harped on until we can yep. make sure that it's right. Again, I, I know every year, when I read the engagement letter for the CPA firm that does the review of the financial statements that I prepare, it very specifically says in there that it says, we know that financial statements rely heavily on the subjective estimates of the management, and that's going to have a major effect on these financial statements. And that's, you know, and it basically says there's only a limit to which we can uh, enforce those and that the, the reliability of the financial statements really is dependent upon the reliability of the, uh, of the management's estimates in those cases right. where they have to estimate. Stuff. So if I, if I may, yeah. if I, if I understand what you're saying, and I think that I do, what you're saying is depending on who you're dealing with, it could be an estimate in the true spirit of what an S the word estimate means. Yeah. Or if you're dealing with Jack Clark, uh-huh. An estimate is a euphemism for maybe a wild ass guess at best and completely fucking made up at worst. Right. Let's leverage yeah. this as much as we can to inflate our financial statements and to inflate the you know the the results that our investors were expecting so that we can hit our targets and we can make our profits on the stock side of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. And I, I think that's the thing about like, say like estimates is estimates is kind of a, it's a very sophisticated thing. Like there's a lot of thought that goes into this and we have formulas and models and, and then we come up with an estimate or, or there's just a guy in a fucking office pulling out of a, a number out of his ass. Right. Well, and the, and the real smart guys are the ones that say, what's the number that we want and how can we reverse engineer an explanation yes. for that number yeah. that we can right. sell to the auditors? That's, that's the smart guys who do that. Right. And, and I'll tell you again, we, so with my companies, we just have reviews, not full audits for our financial statements. And, and I can, I can pinpoint three estimates that I make every single year that never once have even been remotely questioned by the CPA firm that does our our review. My my wages payable estimate, my mm-hmm. interest payable estimate and my interest receivable estimate. And I and I know 
that a lot of why that goes unquestioned is because I believe those are going to fall. I mean, they can't tell me specifically what their materiality threshold is because that violates audit standards. But mm. I'm confident that the reason why they don't bug me about those estimates is because all of them fall below the materiality threshold ah. for our company. But at the same time, I know that I've got bank loan covenants that I've got to meet every year or else the bank could call our loans and I'm pretty confident that if I needed to, I could use those those three estimates to be able to to tweak the numbers to be where I wanted them to be and probably still fall underneath the materiality threshold for that review. So there's estimates that happen all the time and they may or may not be re, uh, questioned at all. So right. and if I if I if I understand this correctly, like whereas auditors are kind of malleable, right? Yeah. Right, where they're where where they're open to your maybe wild ass guesses or sophisticated uh-huh. es- reverse engineered estimates, loan covenants aren't those things that you can really like. No, <laughs> no, a bank no. is just like no, you violated. Like, yeah, we're, we're we're taking the money back. You can't bullshit a loan covenant. It's <laughs> no, it's a math can't. problem. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And so that's that's kind of it's it's interesting because that is I think you know in businesses of all sizes right from you know, small mom and pops to like some of the biggest corporations in the world, like so much of it revolves around meeting their loan covenants. Yeah. And so, so true. It's it's the difference between you being in business or the bank coming by to turn out your fucking lights. Yeah, exactly. And, and again, you know, in terms of the justification for the estimates, I send my CPA firm, my, you know, basically the work papers that I use to create my estimates Yep. And and again, I think they just go, oh, does he have a justification for this number? Yes, he does. Cool. Move on to the next thing. They don't analyze my the math that I did to get to my estimate. They just are wanting to know if there's anything more than just, like you said, pulling a number out of my ass and throwing it on the financial statements. Right. So and then and that right. seems to placate them. Good stuff. What else you got? Uh, the other thing, related parties, those are those are also a, if you if you need to commit financial statement fraud, make a related party that can just take all the losses off off of your books. Because yeah. again, it's it's or very just, or just be the source of all your revenue. Right, right, exactly, exactly. So yeah, well, well, and that's the thing is that it was kind of both with Four Seasons because they had Four Seasons equity that was buying their shit properties at an yep. inflated price. So they got a bunch of revenue from Four Seasons equity and Four Seasons equity just got the got the stinkers of the of the assets. So it was kind of right. kind of both. They were able to to move their losses and see a lot of profits from, you know, giving somebody the bad and getting the good on all that stuff. And again, the goal was to inflate those those stock prices with that but the big thing with and like we've harped on already in this case it should have been pretty straightforward to say four seasons was selling to four seasons they're related parties related parties are incredibly easy to obfuscate to any kind of auditor or regulator because even if you do this, you say, okay, we've got company A and we've got company B and we're trying to say that they're not related at all. So the next thing that that, that, that anybody trying to dig into these companies is going to look at is they're going to look at, okay, what's the ownership of these two companies? But then what you can have is you can, you can create LLCs to be the owner's of that other company. So you can create like nested LLCs to, uh, to where someone would have to do this very extensive research into, okay, 
this LLC is owned by who and this uh, by another LLC. Well, who owns that LLC? Well, it's this guy. And you can just bury the actual ownership be, be, behind just layer like a Russian nesting doll of LLCs. And <laughs> nobody's get, everybody's just going to get worn out before they go through all the hassle to trace down who the actual owners are of both of them. And then even at that point, you could say, okay, I'm going to have my son own that one and not, you know, or, or, or even better yet, my daughter who's now married and has a different last name than me, she's actually going to be the owner of that related. There's, there's ways to just bury it. So if you're not, if you're not disclosing the related parties, nobody's even going to know. So that's, so again, if you're trying to commit financial statement fraud, a hundred percent set up a related party, bury the own, the actual owners deep as you can and don't disclose it. And likely you'll be able to to leverage that much to your benefit. And maybe you too can get $9 million of profits off of your stock and receive no fine in four months in jail. It's, it's a dream. It's a great deal. Reach so, for the stars. Let's let your final lesson, Greg, I think is a fun one. So yeah, please. It's this, <laughs> this is my soapbox. The, and, and it's, it's get controversial. On it. But Please get on it. The the fraud triangle that we all know and love is basically bullshit uh, from from top to bottom. I think is because yeah because the 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 thing that we learn about the fraud triangle is that three things must be present for a fraud to happen. You must have opportunity. You must have pressure to commit the fraud, and you must be able to rationalize the fraud to yourself. And I go not true because. Well, I guess it's not true in the case that if you're looking at opportunity, because because in my mind, I always go, okay, opportunity that you either have it or you don't have it. And so that must be present for you to commit a fraud. Now, if you look, if you look at anybody who's an executive or in a management position, this is something that we learn when we're learning about audits is you have to really analyze those people's transactions in the books because they can override the internal controls. So therefore... You've got this presupposition that management and executives always have opportunity to commit fraud. It's there. It's always there. And, and you can, you know, you can help to minimize it or help to put some, some things in place to where it's going to make it harder to override those controls. But that's always opportunity is always going to be there. Uh, the biggest one I think of that's bullshit is the is the pressure side of things because. Yeah. Because pressure, what what does that mean? I mean, because a lot of times we like to think of pressure as this is where it's like, well, there was, you know, there's this poor accounting knucklehead uh, who's at the bottom of the pole who everybody above him saying, hey, we got to meet our numbers or else you're going to get fired. And then they go, oh, no, I'm going to get fired. So I have to change these numbers. And so they do it. Or, you know, or when it comes to like an embezzlement case, like great pressure story is, oh, no, I'm a gambling holic. I've got I've got all these I've got all these gambling debts and Jimmy Madoli is going to come and he's going to break up my legs if I don't pay him my gambling debts. That was Jimmy Madoli. He was the CPE from Arthur Anderson. We talked about. Yes, he was. Yeah. So, yeah, just a good. Seems like a good uh, mafia name. Anyways, so those are the things we think about with pressure. But I call bullshit on that because okay. everybody's always got pressure because, A, more money is always better than less money, and that's pressure. And everybody's got greed in them somewhere. that Nobody's, nobody's got zero impulse to get more shit, specifically more money. 
I mean, some people to a greater degree than other people, but at the same time, everybody has got some greediness in them. So that's complete bullshit. And then the last one with rationalization, it says, again, the fraud triangle posits that all three components have to be around. And the third component is rationalization, but you get sociopaths. Sociopaths don't need a rationalization to do bad stuff. They just go, yeah, I could do it. So I did it. And that's the, that's the rationalization. So why did you do it? Because I could. Okay. Then that's, that's it. So. Right. And as you pointed out, as you pointed out in preparation for this podcast, it does, it matters not that not every person who commits fraud is not a sociopath. Right. Because, because again, what the fraud triangle posits is that all of those have to be present for a fraud to occur. Right. And we have the counterexample of, of sociopaths. sociopath shows up, which they do from time to time. Well, and studies show that sociopaths and psychopaths are in greater numbers in the executive area of business. <laughs> so they, they have right. a particular skill set that helps them rise to the top. And that is they don't, it's, it's, they're very, they've been genetically predisposed to Machiavellian ladder climbing. So, right. so you get those. So, so again, research has shown you have more sociopaths and psychopaths as executives than you have in the general population. So yeah, yeah. you're good. So again, you have, executives who can override controls you got executives who uh, not and obviously not all executives are sociopaths much to the chagrin of all of their underlings but they're not all sociopaths but there's a higher percentage that are and rationalization i don't i I mean not rationalization pressure i think really kind of isn't a thing and it wasn't for these guys we couldn't find any you know, nobody, nobody was going to get their Ford F-150 repossessed if they didn't hit a stock price of $181 per share. They just wanted money because money's great. Yeah. All right. So that's it for this episode. Remember, if you're going to commit fraud in Oklahoma, you can bet that some hack will throw some musical theater references around. And also remember the best defense is being rich. Greg, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I am easily findable on Twitter, uh, at Greg Kite. And also another great place to find me is on LinkedIn, Greg Kite CPA. What about you, Caleb? Where can people connect with you? Yeah, same. Twitter, at CNewquist. And LinkedIn, my full name, Caleb Newquist. Oh My Fraud is written by Caleb Newquist and Greg Kite. Our producer is Blake Oliver. Music supervision, sound design, editing, and mixing by Zach Frank. If you like the show, leave us a review or share it with a friend. And be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Join us next time for more avarice, swindlers, and scams from stories that will make you say, Oh My, my Fraud. fraud. <laughs>